So lesson number three, building sound doctrine. This one is called hermeneutics, which is roughly interpreting the Bible. This is a very critical lesson. Of course, all of them are. We need to have sound doctrine. As a pastor and a teacher, this is, this is like, this is the burr under my saddle. This is the pee at the bottom of a thousand mattresses if I'm the princess. I cannot handle bad doctrine. I cannot handle when an evangelist butchers the scriptures and then somehow gets 25 people saved. I mean, that's what they're gifted to do. But the whole time they're preaching and they're misquoting scripture and they're mispronouncing names, I'm going, oh, and then, you know, 30 souls come to Christ and then it's the pastor's job to clean them up. We have to have sound doctrine. We have to know the Bible so that we're not deceived in these last days. One of the greatest deceivers is Christian television. Bless those guys' hearts. There, there might be a handful of good, sound Bible teachers on Christian television. Dr. Charles Stanley is phenomenal. I, we're not Baptists. I was raised Baptist. Dr. Charles Stanley is a Baptist. He's one of the most sound Bible teachers you'll find. Him and about three others is all I can name on Christian television. Everything else you can flush because their doctrine is not sound. And getting, getting fed or having a church experience off of television is like listening to somebody take a shower. Everything's there but the wet. Sound is there. You can't feel the steam. You can't feel the moisture. You, can, you'll, you don't get clean. Uh, there's nothing that takes the place of going to church for yourself. There's nothing that takes the place of being at the altar of God for yourself. But that aside, one of the greatest heresies, the greatest deceivers in the land is Christian television. And I'm not against Christian television. We, we're on television. We're just not on big Christian television. And for that, I'm proud. Don't want to be on big Christian television. But... Christian television can make billions, literally billions of dollars a year because the body of Christ is ignorant doctrinally. And they get into these gimmicks and they get into these giving gimmicks and these offering gimmicks and that's just not the will of God. If they would only know the Bible, they wouldn't be suckered by so much of what's on Christian television. So we have to emphasize sound Bible doctrine. The Bible said in the last days, false teachers would arise. False teachers are able to make merchandise of God's people because God's people lack sound doctrine. So let's look at our lesson here. Hermeneutics is the theory or science of text interpretation or textual interpretation. In our case, the interpretation of biblical text. Hermeneutics is not an exclusively theological term. You can have hermeneutics when it comes to the Greek writings and to the Sanskrit writings and to the Hindu writings. But in our case, hermeneutics is always referring to the Bible, the Bible text. We're most familiar with hermeneutics being biblical because we are a Christian nation, or at least we're kind of like on our last lifeline as a Christian nation. So you've heard preachers talk about hermeneutics and seminaries and schools of theology cover it. Hermeneutics comes from the Greek word hermeneuo, meaning to translate or interpret. Now, trans, hear me clearly. Translation is different than interpretation. When you translate something, you're talking about a word-for-word translation or transliteration. You're taking two things and you're just saying what they say. But when you interpret, you're applying understanding and meaning to what's being said. So, um, like I speak a little bit of Japanese. If I were to say, okay, uh, if I were to say, judo shiteru, which is to translate would say, judo play I. So that's a translation, judo play. But if I were to interpret it, I would say, I play judo. So you're adding an understanding. And you could even get a little bit more nuances, which would be part of the interpretation. But if you were to translate it, it would be a literal word for word, even backwards, because it's not our same sentence structure. And so that's a translation. But when you interpret, you begin to add the nuances and the understanding. 
When we talk about hermeneutics, we're talking about the interpretation of scriptures, and that takes into account many things, even the idioms of the Hebraic language uh, and the little nuances, the figures of speech. We covered Wednesday night about King Amaziah calling out to the king of Israel and saying, come, let us face each other face to face, which is a Hebrew expression for let's go to war. But if you didn't understand that, you'd read that and you'd say, wait a minute, God judged King Amaziah by saying, let's go stand face to face. Well, Rick and I stand face to face all the time. God doesn't judge that. Well, if you don't understand and give the interpretation, just the translation, you'll lose what's really going on there. And so when we talk about hermeneutics, we're talking about the interpretation of the scriptures in light of the other scriptures. The term is often used synonymously with exegesis or biblical exegesis, and that means to expound upon or to elaborate upon. Exegesis is limited to a critical interpretation or explanation of text, whereas hermeneutics includes the interpretation of all forms of communication. So again, hermeneutics is a, a wide school of, of training that can be applied to any set of texts. We always talk about biblical hermeneutics, or more specifically, biblical exegesis. Now, these are big terms, but the more you hear them, the more you'll become familiar with them. There are five major analyses that can be used in biblical hermeneutics. Now, this, these are the solidified, conservative, safe ones. One of the great heresies that entered into biblical hermeneutics 50, 60 years ago was this New Age philosophy that was brought in by the hippies. And that whole philosophy said you could interpret scriptures and you would give the interpretation of what they say to you. This still goes on in churches today. This goes on in Bible studies today. And hear me very clear with this next statement. I am not against Bible studies. We promote them and we have several that go on within our church family. And some of you are hosting them for folks outside our church family, which is awesome. I'm not against life groups or cell groups, but one of the greatest dangers in America that enters into life groups, cell groups, home groups, whatever you want to call them, is the fact that you ask ignorant Christians, what does this scripture mean to you? You are now treading upon thin ice called heresy. Because if you were to ask the modern day homosexual, what does this verse mean to you? They would give you heresy. Because we have whole denominations now that are voting out biblical marriage and biblical sexual purity. And they're now saying, who are you to tell people who they can't love? God is love. And if God is love, then I can love who I want to. Here's the other great heresy of the day. You can't control who you love. Oh, the Bible's very strict that you can. The Bible tells you who to love. The Bible tells you who to hate. The Bible tells you what to love. The Bible tells you what to hate. So you, it's a heresy, but it comes about through progressive hermeneutics that says, well, we can now translate the scriptures based on how we feel. What does this scripture say to you? I don't care what the scripture is saying to you. What does the scripture say in light of other scriptures? And when a Holy Ghost preacher preaches it, the spirit of God will slam you. And then you can tell me what the scripture is saying to you because it's going to be by the Holy Ghost. He's, he's telling me I'm out of his will. Yep, that's exactly what that verse is saying. You know, the big argument now is, well, Jesus never taught against homosexuality. No, Jesus forbid pornos which is the Greek word pornos. This is where we get pornography or porno, and it means sexual impurity. But where did Jesus get his interpretation of sexual impurity? Was it not from the Old Testament, the law? Because Jesus was the word made flesh, which would have been Genesis to Malachi. So who defined what illicit sex was? 
the law. What did that include? Adultery, bestiality, pedophilia, homosexuality. So Jesus, when he said pornos, he included everything Moses forbid because Jesus was the law forbidding everything Moses forbid. So we're translating the scriptures differently based on our feelings and now our cultural likings and and dislikings. And now even pastors, because I am one, so I know how we think, pastors are becoming cowards and they don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to draw any Facebook heat. I mean, Facebook heat is so fake anyway. Facebook is nothing but an immature middle school for adults. And they talk about how they feel and it doesn't even matter because they don't serve God. Pastors, because they're afraid of a little bit of cultural heat, a little bit of community heat, a little bit of Facebook heat, they're now beginning to interpret the scriptures based on how they feel and not these five proven methods that have been talked about for 2,000 years. So let's look at these five analyses techniques. These are all big words. Don't let them intimidate you. But the first one is your lexical syntactical analyses. What does that mean? Simple interpretation looks at the words used. That's lexicon or lexical in the verse and how they are used, or syntax. So lexical is the word used, syntax is the way in which it is used. This can be an advanced technique, usually left to the Bible linguist. Now, whenever you hear a redneck or a a half-breed pagan say, well, you can't trust the Bible, it's been translated or interpolated so many different times, they are showing how wretchedly ignorant and Nat Geo trained they are, or Discovery Channel, or usually trained by some ignorant professor at the liberal arts university because we have the original texts from which our new testament is given to us they're written in hebrew chaldean and koine greek all right we have those texts you can pull those texts up online and if you can read those languages you can read the original text yourself and it is from those original texts that the english translation is brought forth and it is from those texts that the spanish translation is brought forth or the japanese translation or the russian translation so when somebody says well they've been translated so many times and the king james he was a pervert so he had it translated for his own liking you can't trust the king james those people are so ignorant you don't even need to have a conversation with them because they're lowering your iq just by listening to them it is such an ignorant statement. They might as well tell you they invented football because it's about as true. This can be an advanced technique usually left to the Bible linguist. A more simple study can be done with a lexicon to determine the full definition of a particular word. Now, we do a lot of that around here when I teach because I, I just do a lot of word studies. So when you're looking at the Bible, one of the ways you can begin to interpret The scriptures is by looking more closely at the words used. Most of you have Bible apps on your phone that can help you do this. Typically, you can go in there and you can click on a word. It will open up the lexicon, the Greek lexicon that is taken from the Koine Greek. Koine Greek is not the equivalent as modern Greek, like old English is not the same as modern English. And you can look at these original meanings, how they're used in ancient Greek writings and classical Greek writings and secular Greek writings and then how they were used in the New Testament Greek writings and then you can see the full gamut of what those words mean so a very familiar word study would be on the different words for love we're all familiar with this if you were raised in church you know there's the agape love Uh, in the south we call it agape but it's pronounced agape then there's there's the eros love and the philos Uh, you have the erotic kind of love or the brotherly love philos love You can begin to look at those and see how they are used and see how they're applied in the scriptures, and that will give you an understanding. One of our biggest 
perhaps modern misinterpretations is agape. We always say agape is the God kind of love, which is not accurate because the Bible says that you can love this world. That's agape. That's what we would call the God kind of love. The Bible says, um, Demas has forsaken me. Uh, Second Timothy chapter four, Demas has forsaken me having agape this present world. First John says, if you agape the world, the love of the father is not in you. So we, we have ignored some of the uses of agape and we've said agape was all just the God kind of love. What agape is, is love that you make sacrifices to do something for. So God loved you, he sacrificed for you. When you love somebody with the love of God, you make sacrifices to help them or you can make the same sacrifices to go to hell. Demas, one of Paul's disciples and fellow servants, he made tremendous sacrifices to leave Paul to serve the world. Anyway, we don't have time to get into heavy into any of this. We have 45 minutes to cover a semester's worth of theology. We can do a word study on the words for judge or judgment. Crino, diacrino, catacrino, anacrino, and crisis. That's what I call the crino family of verb co- uh, word cognates. We, uh, we do a lot of teaching on this around here, but everybody, the, the dirty Christian's favorite verse is Matthew 6, uh, judge not. Used to be everybody's favorite verse was John three sixteen. Now every Christian's favorite verse is Matthew 6, uh, judge not. Because everybody's dirty. But when you look at Matthew 6 and uh, judge not lest you be judged and what measure you judge will be measured back to you. By the time you get to the end of the passage, Jesus is teaching you how to accurately judge your brother. First judge the moat that is in your eye or the beam in your eye and then you can judge your brother's speck and help them safely remove it. That's catacrino, anacrino, diacrino, catacresis, crisis, etc. When we start looking at all those, we start to build a better doctrine for the word judgment. God is a righteous judge. In fact, Philippians 1, 21, I believe it says, I pray that your love would abound in all knowledge and judgment. The love of God in your life abounds with judgment. One of these words here. Because when you love things, you judge them to make them safer, to eliminate them. Amen. Word study on the triune nature of man, pneuma, suke, soma. Then a further word study on the difference between soma and sarx. Soma is your body, sarx is your flesh. Soma is translated body, sarx is translated flesh. Everybody has a soma, everybody has a sarx. Your soma is not the problem, your sarx is the problem. Your soma is your biological body. Your sarx is the nature of the flesh or the sin nature. We know it's not Soma's problem, that is your flesh, your, excuse me, your body, because we could cut your legs off, we could cut your arms off, you'd still have a flesh problem. We could, if it would probably be able biologically, we could remove your body completely, put you in a genetically modified body. You know, maybe, maybe the future provides a science where we can like harvest a body and we could somehow transplant your brain and your organs into that new body, you'd still have a Sarks problem even though the body was biologically, biomedically engineered. And if we could somehow do that, and assuming God would honor and transfer your spirit into that thing. You know, this gets into weird philosophy. We can replace your heart. We can replace your lungs. You can even live without half your brain. Some of you do it effectively every day. (laughs) But you still have a spirit. And that's still the eternal part of you, but yet you still have a sin nature that's going to bug you. You, have, you can have no arms, no legs, and still be full of sin. And that's just the sin nature. And that's why you have to be delivered from this total body and be given a new body. Anyway, that's a lexical syntactical analysis. You look at that 
as you're building sound doctrine. How are these words used? Then you have the contextual analysis. We understand that. What's the context? You must evaluate a verse in its context to fully interpret its intention. A lot of what goes on in Christian television is scripture being taken way out of context without multiple verses used to back up what it's meaning. Now, I will always tell you, if I take a verse out of context, when I'm teaching, I'll usually say, this is the context. I understand the context, but we can use it to compare it with this verse and build sound doctrine. So I'm never going to do that to you because even if I wanted to, the, the thing that God's put in me as a Bible teacher, it can't tolerate that. It just, even if I wanted to deceive you, I couldn't because the gifting to be a teacher, it can't do that. It just, it bugs, it just bugs me. It just, you wouldn't be able to do it. This method will study everything before and after the verse in question and even look at the overall theme of the chapter, even that book of the Bible. Taking the scripture out of context can be very dangerous. For example, what you must do, do quickly. That's what Jesus Christ said to Judas as he was about to betray him. Or you could be a dirty Christian and say, well, I'm going to fornicate. Well, the Bible said what you must do, do quickly. I was wanting to, you know, skip church and go to the ball game. Well, what you must do, do quickly. I got Bible for it. That's horrible. <laughs> Examples. You got to be critical for short passages. And Jesus wept. That's a very short verse. What's the context of it? And I've often heard that that's Jesus speaking about uh, raising Lazarus from the dead and everybody wept and Jesus wept too. He didn't weep. Because, and, they, it says, and they said because of his friendship, he wept. But Jesus already told them three days prior, he's not dead. I'll raise him from the dead. He's not weeping because Lazarus is dead. If you look at the context, he's weeping because all of his disciples still don't get that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is weeping at Mary's ignorant statement, not at Lazarus' death, because Jesus already knew he was going to raise him from the dead. If you know you're going to raise somebody from the dead, you're not crying. You're excited. But when you're trying to deliver 12 disciples to change the world and you're almost ready to die and they still don't get that you're the resurrection in your life, you'd be a little nervous too. What about remember Lot's wife? There's another short verse. That's in Luke's gospel. Remember Lot's wife. What's the context of that? Well, that, that is the context of the end times and people looking back and not serving Jesus to the end and perishing like Lot's wife did, though she was clean escaped from the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Or go and do likewise. Yeah. Oh, I, well, I have dirty friends. Well, follow them. Go and do likewise. You can't do that. You can't take it out of context. It's critical for building accurate doctrine. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Now, everybody loves to take that verse. But in context, it's about living in contentment. The whole context is about living without any money when you're a gospel preacher and letting the Lord teach you how to abound when you have nothing. And I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. I've learned how to be a base and how to abound, how to prosper and how to have nothing. I watched an Olympian one time. She got the gold medal in high diving. She quoted this scripture because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's sweet and that's nice. That's not heresy, but you know, that's, that's a baby Christian in the Olympics giving Jesus Christ the glory. Praise God. That's wonderful. As a Bible student, the context is Paul needs money and he's not getting any, but he's learned how to be content even though the Philippians have robbed him for a long time. But he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. So if you don't believe me, it's Philippians chapter four. Go look at the verse. But if, the, if he, the thief, be found, he shall restore sevenfold. Charismatics love to use that to try to tell the devil he has to repay them seven times. I don't know why you'd want anything coming out of the hand of the devil. He's probably licked all over it. 
It probably smells like his house, which probably smells worse than cigarettes. It smells like ash and hell and sulfur. Why would you want the devil? Charismatics will take that out of the book of Proverbs and say, when I catch that devil, he's going to have to give me sevenfold. How about you just go to your father and say, Father, and let it come from the hand of God, because the blessing of the Lord maketh rich and adds no sorrow to it. And bringeth forth some a hundredfold. That's Mark chapter 4. Sower sows the word. How many TBN preachers have you heard say, if you sow in this offering, you'll reap a hundredfold? The context is the sower sows the word, the Bible. There's only about three verses that talk about a hundredfold natural return on natural things. And one of them is Genesis. And in that year, Isaac sowed and reaped a hundredfold. That's Isaac. Is your name Isaac? You living in Genesis about chapter 25, 26? So you have to be careful. Everybody wants to claim a hundredfold. Now, if you want to aim big, great. But you can't build a sound Bible doctrine out of a hundredfold return on money. You don't have New Testament scriptures for it. I'm not against it. Hey, for that case, believe God for a billionfold return. But then again, one of the great rules of hermeneutics is emphasize or major where the Bible majors and be quiet where the Bible's quiet. And the Bible is not really loud on hundredfold return. So that can't be a major doctrine of ours. Everybody was, all, the, all the preachers that want the Rolexes and the Bentleys, they're big on hundredfold return because Christians are stupid and they're horrible with money. Now, I'll pray a hundredfold return for you because that's better than no return. But as a Bible teacher, I got to be a stickler for it. There are not a lot of verses on hundredfold anything. But what you see three times in the Gospels is hundredfold return on the word of God sown. It just it, you, can, you can be upset because you've been discipled by TBN if you want, but go study the Bible for yourself. I'm all for prosperity, but I'm also more for being prosperous in God's word. His word is what makes us rich in life, not just money. Money's so shallow anyway. Did you not know money comes and money goes? It, Proverbs says it has wings. It just flies away. Theological analyses, to completely understand a biblical subject and thereby build doctrine, you must evaluate all of the verses pertaining to it. So when you do a theological analysis, you're looking at the topic. Look at all the verses. This is where I call the gemstone analogy, where you look at all the different facets of that topic. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. Let the matter two or three witnesses... This can also be called, I call it the law of witnesses. I don't know if I've heard anybody else say that. This verse is quoted again in Numbers 35, 30, Matthew 18, John 8, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 Timothy 5, and Hebrews 10, 28. This law obeys itself. It occurs twice in the Old Testament, twice in the Gospels, and three times in the Epistles. It fulfills itself by appearing six or seven times. These verses teach us that we can't base doctrine on only one verse which is what Christian television is masterful at doing, and a lot of seeker-friendly churches too. We must have the witness of at least two or three to establish any word or doctrine. That's why you must be a student of God's word. We are to build doctrinal premises based upon text. Too often, however, many doctrines can be described as a premise in search of a text. A premise in search. So examples... Communion, there are seven New Testament passages totaling 35 verses. It's upon these that we build our doctrine on communion. And most of those are taken out of the Lord's Last Supper. 
1 Corinthians 11 is our biggest outside the gospel text. You could maybe go back to Genesis and look at the Passover. Water baptism only has seven New Testament passages totaling 16 verses. There are no, test, no Old Testament examples of water baptism for the remission of sins. You could say they're allegories like the baptism of Naaman in the River Jordan, dipping seven times. You could talk about the bab- they were baptized unto Moses. Now you're talking 1 Corinthians as they come through the Red Sea and then baptized to him under the cloud in the desert. But that's not a baptism of remission. That just talks about a submersion into what he was doing. But when you're talking about water baptism, there's no Old Testament examples of it like John initiated and then began to institute through Christ's New Testament water baptism. Notice, though, there's only 16 verses. And yet every Christian church, even if all they do is sprinkle, agrees with water baptism. Nobody argues over that. Now, the evangelicals don't like the Catholics and the Anglicans sprinkling. The Methodists sprinkle, too. I got sprinkled in the Catholic Church in Ireland. I'm officially Irish Catholic now. And I had a pastor do it, so you know it was official. But we kind of snuck in and did it at St. Patrick's Catholic Cathedral in Armagh, Ireland a couple months ago. (laughs) So I'm officially an Irish Catholic tongue-talking Baptist. (laughs) Top of the that about to you. (laughs) Then you have the doctrine of tongues. One Old Testament passage with two verses and 14 New Testament passages totaling 108 verses. So you have 108 verses, which is way more than water baptism and communion combined. And yet some New Testament modern Christians still not sure about tongues. Well, then you're willfully ignorant because you refuse to study the 108 verses I count. And actually, as I look at it, there's a lot more than two verses in uh, Isaiah where it talks about with stammering lips and an unknown tongue shall speak on this people, yet they'll not hear me. For this is the rest I told them, this is the refreshing. And yet for all that, they would not hear me. There's about five or six verses there in Isaiah. So maybe we bump it up to 114 to build our doctrine on tongues. And yet some Christians of this, they are willfully ignorant that there is an experience called the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. But that would be a lesson for another eight classes. That happens to be on pod school. You go look it up. So every biblical doctrine is a beautiful, multifaceted gem. If you're going to do a theological analysis, you have to look at all the verses. We call that a topical study. All the, all the verses on grace, all the verses on repentance, all the verses on judgment, all the verses on salvation, all the verses on evangelism, all the verses on marriage, all the verses on parenting, all the verses on worship, all the verses on tithing, all the verses on giving, all the verses on provision, all the verses on poverty, all the verses on moderation, all the verses on self-control. This is how you begin to do a theological analysis to see how these subjects change between covenants, Old and New Testament. You can't just be a one-hit wonder. You have to be a Bible scholar across the board. Each facet or scripture of the gem or doctrine is critical to defining the gem and producing the radiance that reflects God's glory. And so obviously when you have a Bible doctrine or subject that has very few verses, you can't have a very elaborate doctrine and you shouldn't emphasize it. Uh, There is one minister that I know of. I've met him. He's a great guy. His whole ministry is based on angels. I mean, that's great. And there's a doctrine of angels. It's called angelology, which is kind of funny. I'd at least go back to, well, the Greek word is angelos. Angelology, which is just hard to say. That alone would make you want to change subjects. But every conference he has is about angels, angels, angels. You're going to get a little goofy teaching your church about angels every service. They're going to start seeing angels, and they're not all going to be angels of light. There are going to be some demons too. And so if there's a limited number of scriptures, 
for which there is somewhat on angels, then you don't emphasize that. It's not a heavy thing. Angels are like kind of background doctrine. We study it. We might cover it one subject, one service a year, because that's about the amount of emphasis the New Testament puts on it. You might could do a three or four service study on angels, and that would suffice you for a year or two. We all know we got them. We're thankful for them. And, you know, let's serve Jesus. It's like this one crazy nut job church out in California. A lot of weird stuff comes out of California. They wanted to teach their children how to prophesy and operate in the prophetic arts. Their children. And I thought, how about you teach them to say yes, sir, and no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and to stop pooping in their pants and to quit pushing their friends down. How about you work on not eating boogers? Why are we taking Sunday school time to teach our kids how to prophesy and operate in the prophetic arts? There's no such thing as the prophetic arts. Unless you're a weird hippie who got saved and wants to bring something weird to the church. A good Baptist church won't permit that, but a crazy-matic church will. And that's why you have all these weird, new-age, pseudo-charismatic churches in California producing worship teams that are very popular. A little funky. They're also not really known for their Bible doctrine either. Doctrine keeps you safe. Historical or cultural analysis. This is something we have to take into effect or, uh, into uh, consideration as well. Often the historical or cultural setting must be understood and accounted for to accurately understand what the Bible is trying to communicate. If misunderstood, cultures, customs, and social settings can invariably produce erroneous doctrines. Now, you and I are affected by this more than we realize. Maybe this lesson will help you. Example, understanding the first century Corinthian culture can help to interpret Paul's insistence only in Corinthians that women pray with their heads covered. If you don't understand that there was an issue at Corinth with the local temple prostitutes who had a shaved head, that's how you knew she was a temple prostitute. Part of that practice of the pagan worship at the time is the, the prostitutes shaved their head and you would go into those temples to worship those demons and part of what you would do is bring an offering and have sex with the temple prostitute. That's how you worshiped your demon. This is very well covered in Greek culture and, and Greek um, history. Well, those girls were getting saved and coming into the house of God. And don't you know it might look weird to come into a local church and yet you see women who look like the temple prostitutes you just visited last Sunday. Wait, is this a church or is this a pagan temple? So now we have to do something to adjust for culture. How about we start a new culture? How about we cut, pray with our head covered? And then Paul has to go on to say, does not nature tell you that a woman's hair is her very glory and any woman praying without her head covered defileth herself and dishonors God? And so that's mentioned in one passage in one epistle, not even in the second Corinthian, just the first one. It's not mentioned in Galatians, it's not mentioned in Ephesians, it's not mentioned in Philippians or Colossians, it's not in James, it's not in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, it's mentioned one place. And when Paul finalizes his context there, talking about praying with your head covered, he said, but if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither do the churches of God. So he explains right there, this is a local custom to accommodate for a local sin. And yet, big chunks of United Pentecostal churches, they have to have their head covered. And they think women with short hair are sinful because they violate one verse taken out of a historical context. And they don't emphasize the first part that the head of every woman is her husband. 
That's the emphasis of the whole thing. The whole passage is about leadership and authority. So you have whole denominations that if you go to their church, you have to pray with your head covered. I'm all, I mean, if you want to wear a hat, wear a hat. If you want to wear a veil, wear a veil. But Paul said, if you have a problem with this, I don't have this custom. He lets you know right there what the problem is. It's a custom. And it was a custom to help those women who were getting saved, coming to church, and their hair takes what? Does it take a week to grow out? No. It takes months, if not two years, to where she looks like she's not a temple prostitute anymore. So that is a historical setting that has to be taken into consideration when you want to interpret that passage. How about another one? Understanding the social status of a publican or a Roman soldier can help reveal the heart behind what Jesus said to them. If they take your coat, give them both. That was something the Roman soldiers could do to anybody. They could demand. If they ask you to go a mile, go two. That was a Roman command. That was a, that was a Roman legion's job. They could grab a Jew, say, carry my armor with me up to a mile. And Jesus said, go two. He was trying to help the Jews to love the Romans who were their occupying army. And they were hated. Because see, in the, in the context, the Romans, they're, they're soldiers. They're an occupying army, but they have to wear this heavy armor. They could grab a Jew away from her children or away from his farm and say, you Jew, carry my armor with me for a mile. And, the, and they hated that. And Jesus said, if they ask you to go one mile, go two. If they're cold and they ask for a tunic, give them also your coat. He was trying to teach the Jews how to love their enemies. Turn the other cheek. All this gets taken out of such weird, perverse context. Now, America could probably stand to walk one mile and then two more because of how obese we've gotten. And we don't need any more clothing. We could probably afford to give away more clothing. But if you don't understand the cultural, the military cultures of all this, you don't understand what Jesus is dealing with. When he told the Roman soldiers, be content with your wages and don't steal. The Romans were paid, but it wasn't enough. So they would pilfer and rob from the Jews. He was dealing with the Romans that were coming to him for salvation. He's always addressing stuff. Sin likes to break out in culture. And when sin breaks out in culture, you have to adjust your church culture. You know, our, our Western culture doesn't understand how to court. We date. and We date like people play the field. So the church has to make an adjustment to help young people not be stupid in dating. And then they get all caught up in the semantics. Well, what's the, well if I can't date, how am I going to meet somebody? Sit down and catch the heart of God. Just quit trying to be like your friends and date to play the field. The heart of God is you don't need a boyfriend or a girlfriend because you have Jesus Christ. And when you're mature enough, he'll bring you the right one and you won't have to date them. You can court them and begin to proceed towards marriage. Last one, understanding the Levitical code can help reveal the significance of David walking into the Holy of Holies to eat the showbread. While understanding the regional culture of Canaan can help one to appreciate the, Levit uh, the Levitical call for no shaved heads, growing out one's hair at the sides, and not clipping the corners of your beards. You can also appreciate why the Jews hated the Samaritans and what that was all about, if you understood the historical and cultural significance of Samaritans. If you don't, you'll miss so much doctrine, and you'll take those scriptures out of context and try to build something that the Bible is not saying. Uh, your last one is literary analysis. We're doing pretty good on time here. The scriptures are written in several different literary styles. These styles must be kept in mind when seeking to interpret the text. 66 books of the Bible, 31,102 verses written in, I think, five different styles. Let's see if I'm right here. Histories, prophecies, narratives, poetry, psalms, and letters. Six different styles. So you have history books, 
You have poetical books. You have narratives. You have poetry. You have psalms, which are worship hymns. And letters, like the epistles, the New Testament. Furthermore, these literary styles themselves incorporate allegory and parables, metaphors. Under his wings thou shalt trust. It doesn't mean God literally has wings. We understand that. So you can't go making a doctrine that God has wings just like angels do. And if you want to come back to angelology, only one classification of angels has wings. And they have six wings. And those are the only wings spoken of of angels. So you find out there's multiple classifications of angels. Only the ones around the throne room have wings. And you may never see them. They cover six. With two, they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet. Because they're, they're not holy enough to look on the Lord. They're not holy enough to walk around the Lord. And with two, they do fly. Apparently, the, the ground around the holy, the, of holies in the heavens is so holy, the angels refuse to touch foot down there. They just fly around him. So, you know, the Renaissance painters were way wrong. Because everybody's got wings. No, it's a metaphor. It's like a mother chick, a mother hen wants to gather. He, Jesus even said that marching into Israel for the last time, how I long to gather you under my wings as a, a hen does her, her chicks, but you would not. Similes, your neck is like an ivory tower. That's from Song of Solomon. Well, he also says she's what? She's as beautiful as the she-goats upon the rocks. See, you can't call your wife a she-goat today. You might could say your neck is like an ivory tower, you know, you know, just slender, nice lines. You know, even to this day in most cultures, a neck is a very beautiful, sensual thing for a man. And so, but that's a simile. Uh, your neck is like an ivory tower. It doesn't say you're thick and strong like an ivory tower. It's just got beautiful elegance like an ivory tower. You can't necessarily build doctrine out of your neck is like an ivory tower, except to say you should always compliment your wife. Amen. Yeah. Figurative language, the young lions and the adders. Let's see, that's, uh, that's Psalm 91, the young lions and the adders. That is a, a figurative language talking about people who run their mouth. You'll see that over and over again through the Psalms when David's being slandered. He talks about the, 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 uh, the venom of asps is under their tongue. They did chew upon me with their mouths. The young lions did slander me. So you see that this is a figurative language. That doesn't mean we literally go walking on lions and adders. That's when the hillbilly Pentecostal churches, you know, they die. They, go, they burn through pastors real quick because they're always getting bit by a rattlesnake. If you get bit by a rattlesnake, snake handling, you deserve to die. That, that's, uh, you get a Darwin Award. You have thinned the gene pool of stupid. We do not handle snakes in this church, nor do we handle scorpions, even though the Bible says you can handle snakes and scorpions. Yeah, I believe that's figurative. I'm not interested in handling anything that can kill me. Amen. We need to be very clear on that. And yet, obviously, some weird Pentecost- Pentecostals come up with the dumbest stuff. And we're Pentecostal, which means we have a predisposed disposition to produce dumb stuff, which is why we're such Bible people around here to help limit the dumb. Amen. And literal language, in my name shall they cast out devils. Now, that's literal. We've done a lot of that. I love casting out a good demon. I love watching them foam at the mouth. And the next one we get to do in a church service, I'm putting my microphone in that thing's face so you can hear it. So some of you will quit living so sinful. You don't get demons living for Jesus. You get demons compromising. We'll get a camera. I don't care to put it in their face. Let's film this thing. I want you to see how strong they are when they manifest. I want you to see their eyes change. I want you to see them foam at the mouth. I want you to see them lift six guys. I want you to see that. I want that recorded next time we have to cast out a demon. In Cookville, not Africa. 
not Central America, Cookville. Nobody seems to get demons quite as quick as a Pentecostal that backslides. A bulk of the people I've cast demons out of have been spirit-filled Christians. I had to go to Africa to find my first non-believer that had a demon, and it wasn't too hard to cast out. But you get a Pentecostal backslidden, somebody doing drugs, looking at pornography, sleeping around, cutting themselves, that demon is entrenched, and that takes some time to get out because they like it. They want it. They've already had the Holy Ghost, and they rejected him, and they went for something else. So I like that literal language. In my name, they shall cast out devils. So see uh, Henry A. Verkler's Hermeneutics Principles and Process of Biblical Interpretation for a deeper study on Bible hermeneutics if you want to. When you understand this, and this is a 45-minute Sunday school lesson, I think you can already see there's a lot more to Bible interpretation than just to preach your preaching on Sunday morning. You'll understand that when we talk about these doctrines have been proven, then when your idiot, pagan, demon-possessed college professor says the Bible's not true, you realize how stupid that man is, though he's educated. There is so much more to this. And and please mind you, theologians have been studying the Bible for 2,000 years down to the syntax and the punctuation in the original Greek and Hebrew. They know what they're talking about. Just because you're not disciplined enough to read your Bible every day doesn't mean somebody else didn't spend 60 years of their life studying it in the original languages and has already proven it out. It's amazing. We'll trust some ding-dong behind a college lectern with a PhD who has a PhD in one sliver of one field of one science, and we think he knows it all, but we won't trust the fathers of the faith who have built upon the fathers of the faith who have built upon the fathers of the faith, all the way back to the Irish and the Catholic monks who spent centuries studying out the holy texts, taking vows of celibacy so they could focus on the Bible. A lot of our doctrine comes back from that. And now with all of our technology, we've proven how right it is. I'm just, I'm appalled at how educated America is and yet how fully stupid we are in denying Jesus Christ. Well, because it's the Bible. That book's been translated so many times, you can't trust nothing it says. I can't even trust what, I don't even know what you're saying, much less to trust you. Wipe your chin, you're drooling. Trajectory hermeneutics, this is heresy. Trajectory hermeneutics, heresy also known as the redemptive movement hermeneutics. This stuff is from the pit of hell. This is progressive liberal. This is part of the emergent church. Some of this is seeker-friendly. You should flee seeker-friendly churches. I have a lot of friends that are seeker-friendly pastors. They have no idea what fountain they're drinking from. They are guilty of trajectory hermeneutics, and they don't even know it. Trajectory hermeneutics is an exegetical approach that seeks to interpret the Bible voice as a progressive trajectory. All right, keep that in mind. What it basically says is that the will of God is evolving with modern man. Now, we all know the Bible stopped being written when John had the revelation, and we know it's said and done. Fourth Council of Nicene, or the the Council of Nicene, fourth century AD, they, they canonized the Bible. There's certain scriptures and texts that we don't have because they didn't believe it was inspired enough. We know the revelation is the last book God breathed. Therefore, everything sealed into that is what God wanted, and God does not change, nor how he views sin. It does not change either. 
We are currently in the sixth dispensation called the dispensation of grace or the church age. How God will begin to deal with man will change when the rapture happens and judgment will be poured out upon all mankind. Jewish time is reinserted. That's the fifth dispensation. Then we go into the seventh dispensation, which is the millennial reign of Christ. How God is will not change, but how he deals with mankind will. God does not change, but how he relates to mankind does. Trajectory hermeneutics says all that is a lie. God evolves with modern man. In the end, let's see, a progressive trajectory that in the end requires this, the scriptures to be interpreted in light of modern culture. Now, Dr. Barclay has mentioned trajectory hermeneutics once or twice, and he talks, he likes to use this example. When you, when you shoot a bullet, you talk about the trajectory of the bullet. So it's not where the bullet leaves the barrel, but where you anticipate it going. So it's not where the Bible stopped being written, but where modern man anticipates it's implying things. So that's the trajectory. The Bible left off here, so let's fill in the blanks to meet our needs. Heresy. In essence, this approach endeavors to calculate the trajectory, that is the direction and velocity, the Bible narrative and doctrines were headed when the canon was closed and then extrapolates its landing site and presumed target. Well, it basically says, well, Paul didn't know everything. John didn't know everything. James didn't know everything. They left some things out. Let's fill in the blanks for them. You know, they were talking about love, but they didn't understand how gays could love each other and sodomize each other and then adopt somebody else's kids. Or how in our modern science, we'd be able to remove breasts and then have pregnant men with beards and yet have a baby from their other spouse who was a former woman but saved her sperm before she had her thing cut off and had breast implants. See, Paul didn't see that coming, so, but love is love. Therefore, the Bible permits that. That's trajectory hermeneutics. Now, seeker-friendly churches in town aren't that extreme, but there are probably only two or three church fellowships that they know in their connection that are that extreme. Folks, do you realize we have denominations in America ordaining transgender priests and pastors? I mean, I don't... I just saw where one... one, They they just ordained a non-binary transgender lesbian. I don't even know. It's like ordering something at Starbucks. I'll take a non-binary transgender lesbian. Grande. Hold the froth. What is a non-binary transgender lesbian? And what is she doing? Him, Shem. What are they doing behind the pulpit? What are they preaching? In essence, this approach endeavors to calculate the trajectory the Bible narrative and doctrines were headed when the canon was closed and then extrapolates its landing site and presumed target. The current end result is approval of modern sin fads. Sin, that is fad. In its interpretive method, trajectory hermeneutics is the opposite of the historical interpretive device known as modernism. If you know history, if you're a history student, you know what modernism is. It's trying to interpret the motives of Abraham Lincoln in light of modern issues. You can't do that. It's trying to interpret Thomas Jefferson and George Washington in light of modern standards and mores, and you can't do that. You have to keep them in the historical setting to know the, the, the things they were facing. Modernism erroneously endeavors to interpret historical events and people through the filter and understanding of the current cultural climate. Modernism assumes man's heart stays the same. Trajectory hermeneutics assumes God's heart changes. And that's the heresy. God's heart does not change. God hates sin today as much as he ever has. In the end, both work to promote and justify modern perversion. They are both promoted by the spirit of the world, that is Satan. 
Trajectory hermeneutics or redemptive movement hermeneutics, as it is sometimes called, is a predominant framework used by those who would argue that we should not obey all New Testament instructions since God's ultimate ethic is beyond what the text actually says. Think about that. God's ultimate ethic, and that's a quote from them, is beyond what the Bible says. In essence, we should wait to see where this thing shall land. So this is all heresy. This is how churches don't have a problem with sin. Stick with the Bible and study it, and you'll know it, and you'll know God. Study, study, study. 66 books, 31,102 verses. You've not read them all. And if you have, you can't quote them all. And if you can, you can't make doctrine out of it all yet. So stick with the Bible. There's much more to learn. When we go to heaven, we're still going to be studying the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. All right? Father, thank you for Sunday school. Thank you for the validity and the truth of your word. Thy word is truth. We will exalt it above even our last name. You said you exalt your word above your name, and we are thankful for the Bible. Bless us, Lord, as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen.